In his book, Christ's Call to Discipleship, the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce mentions in that book a letter that he received from some new missionaries explaining their financial needs. He wrote this. He said, I received a letter from a couple going to the mission field for the first time. It listed their financial requirements, so much for support, medical expenses, insurance, pension, the cost of operating an automobile, travel to and from the field, overhead for the home office, and so on. I was not disturbed by the letter. I was actually quite sympathetic. I know that the requests were reasonable. Still, I could not help contrasting their letter with the Lord's commands to the disciples when they set out on their first missionary journey. And those commands that Dr. Boyce is referring to is the very passage that we are studying. We began last week. We continue this week. These are our Lord's words recorded for us in Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now, as I said, we began a study of these verses last Sunday, and we discovered that they constitute our Lord's instructions to his 12 apostles just before sending them out for their first taste of missionary work. Having recently chosen them as his apostles, Jesus is now ready to get them involved in the actual work of ministry by sending them on a short-term missions trip all around the region of the Galilee, that is to say northern Israel. And what Dr. Boyce has called our attention to with his statement about receiving a letter from a new missionary couple is the contrast between Christ's commands, specifically his command in verse 3, for his men not to take any money or extra supplies with them on their first missionary journey, and the typical approach of today's first-time missionaries in making sure that all of their financial arrangements have been met well in advance before leaving for the mission field. But actually, that's just one of several commands given in these verses that we need to grapple with in order to understand how they apply to us today. You see, as we observed last week, the challenge facing us as 21st century followers of Christ is to determine how these verses, these statements by Jesus, are relevant for us today. Since these commands were given in the context of a first century Jewish setting, and therefore some of them sound frankly very odd and very strange to us. For example, how is Christ's command in verse 1 to heal the sick and cast out demons, how is that significant for us today in light of the fact that Paul told the Corinthians that the power to do miracles of this nature were given only to the apostles. He said in 2 Corinthians 2.12 that these were the signs of an apostle. So they're not for everybody. 
And there are no apostles today. Also, how do we put into practice the command found in verse 5 to shake off the dust from our feet if someone doesn't receive our witness? So these commands, they do pose some interpretive challenges to us because being committed to the authority of Scripture and therefore we are committed to obeying Christ's words, we need to know not only what Jesus meant by what he said, but also how to carry out his commands, these commands, in our own lives. And what we discovered last week is that the way to interpret, the way to understand how to carry out these commands is to understand the timeless principles behind them. In other words, at the core of these specific commands given to the apostles are very broad and timeless, enduring truths about how Jesus wants all of us as his followers to minister on behalf of him. That is to say that inherent or built into these specific commands that Jesus gave to the apostles are enduring principles about how to minister effectively. And though these principles about ministry are especially applicable to those in full-time Christian service, they certainly are broad enough to apply to any believer engaged in serving Christ. And if you're a believer, you are to be engaged in serving Christ somewhere, somehow, doing something. Now, last week, we had only time to look at two of these biblical principles about effective ministry. And today, as we continue our study, we're going to look at two more. But let me quickly review for you what we saw last week. The first biblical principle about ministry is that those who minister for Christ must have credibility. Again, I read to you verse 1. And he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. Now, what gave the apostles credibility with the people of Galilee so that they knew that they represented Jesus, that they were his official ambassadors, was their supernatural ability given to them by Jesus to cast out demons and to heal people. Seeing them do, doing the exact same miracles that Jesus was known for in Galilee would convince the people that these 12 men were Christ's authorized representatives. And why was it so important that these men have credibility as Christ's authorized representatives? It was because Jesus had a message that he wanted the people of Galilee to hear. It was the message of him as king and the kingdom has arrived. And these men were his chosen spokesmen to proclaim that message, and they needed credibility or nobody would listen to them. Why should they listen to a bunch of farmers and fishermen unless they represented Christ? And these miracles gave them credibility to show the people they did represent him. And so the timeless principle of this truth is that just as the apostles needed credibility as Christ's representative, so do we. And the only thing, and I emphasize the only thing that gives us credibility in the eyes of others, is that we remind people of Jesus, that our lives reflect him, that we live out the truths we claim to believe, that we practice what we preach. Jesus said in John 13, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We are to remind people of Christ by the way we love others, especially other believers, but also by the way we live. See, the only way unbelievers will take you seriously when you tell them about Christ is if your life demonstrates that you're a genuine follower of Christ. Otherwise, they just dismiss you as being a hypocrite. So credibility 
is necessary. The second timeless principle that we saw last Sunday about effective ministry is that those who minister for Christ must proclaim him as King and Lord. Verse 2, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. So this is really the heart of the mission that Jesus sent them to do. I mean, the, the healing was important. The casting out of demons was important, but only in the sense of giving them credibility as well as showing God's compassion. But the heart of the ministry was to proclaim the kingdom, to proclaim to the people in Galilee that the kingdom of God had arrived in that form because Jesus, their king, had arrived. It was a message that told them not only about the kingdom, but how to enter the kingdom through genuine saving faith that involved repentance from sin and an attitude of submission to Christ as Lord and King. You can't have a kingdom without having a king. And this is essentially the same message we proclaim to unbelievers today. Although living on this side of the cross, we have been given the message of explaining the cross of Christ, his death on behalf of sinners. But essentially, it's the same message that they proclaimed to unbelievers back then, we proclaim today. We tell people that Jesus is king. He's Lord. He's not simply the Savior. He's Lord. He's king. And the way into his kingdom is the same. It's always been by repentance and faith in his sacrificial death with a heart of submission to his authority. Now, as we continue our study today, we see Jesus giving a third timeless principle about serving him, and it's this. Those who minister for him must learn to trust him to provide for their needs. Verse 3, And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Now, with these words, the Lord is telling his 12 apostles to make sure that they travel light. Travel light as they go on this missions trip. In fact, he tells them that they are to travel so light that essentially they should take nothing but the clothes on their backs. Specifically instructs them not to take a staff with them, meaning a walking stick used in traversing difficult terrain. However, interestingly, in Mark's gospel, in Mark's account of these words, we read that Jesus allowed them to take a staff with them. So is this a contradiction? Not at all. Apparently, when you put this together, what Luke means is that they were not allowed to take an extra walking stick on the trip, just like they were not allowed to take extra tunics, which are undergarments. So he told them also not to take a bag with them, meaning a traveling bag or a knapsack that was used to carry supplies like food and clothing, much like our backpacks function today. In addition, they were forbidden to even take bread or money on this trip. And as far as clothing was concerned, they were not permitted to bring, as I told you, two tunics, meaning two undergarments for them. In other words, they were permitted to take only the tunic they were wearing, but not an extra one. But in addition to all that they were forbidden to take with them, there's an important statement that Jesus gave that is not recorded in Luke's gospel narrative, but it's found in Matthew's account of this passage. And this statement is important because it helps us to understand why Jesus forbid them from taking material supplies with them. You see, just before telling the apostles to take nothing 
for this missionary journey, Matthew tells us that Jesus said, freely you received, freely give. Having just instructed the apostles to preach the message of him as king, as well as heal the sick, cast out demons, Jesus now makes it very clear that they are not to charge anyone money for doing their ministry of preaching and healing and casting out demons. Listen, can you imagine? Can you imagine how much money the apostles could have made just by healing the sick? There's almost no limit to what people will pay for their health, especially back in the ancient world where medical science was unknown and diseases were so prevalent. As John MacArthur put it, he said, desperate people would have paid anything to have them heal diseases and cast out demons just as they do today to unscrupulous fake healers who cannot heal anyone. So when Jesus says, freely you received, he means that all they had in terms of their preaching skills and abilities and the authority to perform miracles, all of that, all that were given to them freely by him. It didn't cost them anything because Jesus did not charge them for their abilities, the abilities he gave them. It was all of grace, all of mercy. And when he says freely give, he means if I didn't charge you a fee for my services, then you aren't to demand a fee for your services. Therefore, in light of the possibility that the apostles could begin to sell their services so that they could purchase, make money, and purchase then some of the supplies that Jesus forbid them from taking with them on this trip, the Lord makes it very clear to them that they are not, they are absolutely not to take advantage of desperate people by charging money for their ministry. And folks, the same principle holds true today. Those who minister for Christ are never to put a price tag on their ministry. They are never to charge money or anything for their services. You see, false teachers are notorious for financially exploiting the people they claim that they're serving. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 14, Peter speaks of false teachers as he says, having a heart trained in greed. They're not just greedy, they're trained in greed. They nurture greediness. They exploit people. They take advantage of them to make money off of them. But those who represent Jesus are to be just like him in the area of ministry and finances. And that means just as he hasn't charged you for his service to you, because it's all of grace, so you aren't to charge others when you minister in his name to them. You see, if you charge someone for ministry, then it's no longer ministry. It's called business. Now, in light of the fact that Jesus forbid them from charging money for their pastoral services and therefore having money then to buy the supplies they were lacking, a valid question for us to to ask at this point is why? Why did the Lord put all of these material restrictions on the apostles? I mean, how were they supposed to survive? Survive this missions trip without any resources and without charging people for their services. Listen, no one today in their right mind would think of going on a trip, especially a ministry missions trip, without taking 
any money or credit cards or extra clothing or important supplies. In fact, just like the opening quote I gave you from James Montgomery Boyce, a test that if you've ever received a letter from a missionary, you know that they often list their needs specifically their financial needs for their support, which would include their medical expenses, their insurance costs, the cost of operating an automobile, travel expenses to and from the field, and and so forth. But Jesus said that his apostles, going on their first missions trip, were to take nothing with them, and they weren't to charge people for their services so they could obtain money to purchase their needed supplies. So then why did the Lord put them in such an unusual situation? Listen closely. The reason that Jesus put these restrictions involving money and physical supplies on these men is because he wanted them to learn to rely upon him as their God to meet all of their needs. If they were going to serve him by going all around the world in full-time vocational ministry, then they needed to begin somewhere to start putting their confidence in him to supply their needs. No longer would they have their professional careers like fishing to fall back on. They needed to learn to start looking to the Lord to meet all of their needs and to see that he does this. So if that's the case, that the Lord puts us and he still does in situations where we are forced to trust him to meet all of our needs, then another valid question to ask is this. So, if that's the case, and it is the case, the Lord always wants us to trust him. The question is, how far do we take this command? In other words, in applying this command to our lives, are we required to refrain from taking any money or any supplies on a short-term missions trip or, or any ministry endeavors for that matter. Does this mean that when we send out a missionary team or a couple to the mission field that we need to tell them to take nothing with them but the clothes on their back? The answer to all these type of questions is no. No. Because this command that the Lord gave to the apostles was unique and it was limited to these men for that particular ministry trip and that trip alone. And the reason we know this, and this is not my opinion, this is not my speculation, the reason we know this is the case is because of something we will read later on in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 22, verses 35 and 36, so we might as well read it now and tie this together. And he, he being Jesus, said to them, when I sent you out without a money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, no, nothing. And he said to them, but now, whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag, and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. Now, here, in Luke 22, Jesus is referring back to the very missions trip we're reading about in Luke chapter Nine, And he is asking the apostles, if when I restricted you from taking any money and supplies with you on that trip, did you lack anything that you needed? And they all said, no, nothing. We didn't lack anything. It was all supplied. And then he gives them a complete new set of instructions in which they were commanded to take supplies, indicating that his original forbiddance 
of taking money and supplies was never intended by him to be a universal command for all time. And the proof of this is that with his crucifixion coming up, and that's the context of Luke 22, with the cross coming up, he tells the apostles to make sure that they have enough supplies ready to take with them, specifically a money belt, a bag, a sword, because things are going to get rough and they will need them. In other words, when it comes to taking money and supplies with them, unlike before, they should do it now because a different set of circumstances means a different command. So then if Jesus wasn't issuing a universal command that he intended all believers to obey every time they went on a ministry trip, then what is the timeless principle that he was conveying through this command not to take any needed supplies with them? In other words, how do we apply this? How do we apply this to our lives today? Listen closely. The timeless principle at the core of this command here in Luke chapter 9 is that all believers, especially those in full-time service, but all believers need to learn that God can and will supply their needs. That is to say, the Lord wants all of his servants to know that if they give themselves to do his work, they can trust him to take care of of their needs. This is exactly the same truth that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount when he said in Matthew 6 verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That's in the context of don't worry about your clothes. Don't worry about your food. Don't worry about tomorrow. Your job is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and God will take care of you. So in light of all this, how exactly does the Lord then supply the needs of his servants, especially those in vocational Christian ministry who have no secular jobs to fall back on? If it's not through secular employment and they aren't to charge for their services, then how does God provide for the needs of full-time ministers and missionaries? Well, in Matthew's account again of the same passage, he records that after telling the apostles not to take any supplies with them on this trip, Jesus, he said, added these very significant words. He said, for the worker is worthy of his support. That's Matthew 10, verse 10. For the worker is worthy of his support. And what the Lord means by this is that as the apostles labored in service for him, they were to trust God to supply their needs, watch this, through the generosity of his people. In other words, the principle that's being taught here is that those who minister full-time for the Lord are to be financially supported by those that they minister to. This is how God will supply their needs, through the generosity of his people. That's what he's telling the apostles. And this isn't an isolated statement in Scripture. It's a truth that is consistently taught throughout the Bible, beginning with the law. In Deuteronomy 25, 4, we read these words, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. That is to say, they were not to cover the, the mouth of an ox while he was busy working the field because that would prevent him from eating and living off of the fruit of his labors. Now, the apostle Paul 
uses that very same statement found in the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy and he applies it to ministers being paid for their labors. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 7 through 11. Paul tells the Corinthians, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So what Paul is teaching the Corinthians is that they as a congregation have the responsibility to financially support those who minister to them. In other words, when God gave this command about the ox in his law, he wasn't just referring to animals in the field. He was also referring to ministers, servants, who labor for him. This is why he said in verse 11 that those who minister spiritually to a church congregation should be taken care of physically and materially by that congregation. Now, there are some rather important applications and implications from these statements about money and ministry. First of all, as followers of Christ, we need to learn to trust the Lord to meet all of our needs. Every believer needs that. That's a very significant part of our witness to those who are without Christ. See, if you are going to effectively witness to those who are without Christ, those in the world about our Lord's ability to meet the spiritual needs of sinners, to save them for all of eternity, it's important that all of us demonstrate by trusting him that he can meet the physical needs of his people. It's not much of a witness if we claim that Christ can save a sinner for all eternity, but we doubt that he can meet our financial obligations. What kind of a God is he who promises to save a soul forever but can't feed a hungry stomach? So part of our witness to a cynical, disbelieving world is to show them that God is directly involved in our lives by supplying everything we need. We're not talking about luxuries, we're talking about needs. Secondly, those in full-time ministry, and in particular missionaries, need to make sure that their trust isn't in an organization that they belong to. It shouldn't be in individuals who promise to send monthly support checks. The trust needs to be in the Lord. There is a danger of becoming too secure, too comfortable with promised monetary gifts from God's people. The Lord wants us to look to him to supply our needs. In other words, our trust has to be in him moving upon the hearts of his people to give rather than trusting in the people themselves. Third application concerning money and ministry is that the reason we can trust God to meet our needs is because he promises. We have his word for it that he will meet the financial and material needs of every believer and not just his servants in full-time ministry. So I want you to see what Paul wrote about this, about God supplying our needs, this promise, marvelous promise we have in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. Paul said, And my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, in this verse, Paul is telling the Philippians, who, by the way, were a very poor people, 
They are the poor Macedonians he will write about in 2 Corinthians. Paul is telling the Philippians that God will supply all of their needs according to how rich he is. And how rich is he? He has infinite riches. Infinite riches. And out of those infinite riches he can, Paul said, and he will meet every one of your needs. This is God's promise to you. He has an endless supply of riches that never, it never dries up. And out of those riches, he will provide for all of your needs. But, and it's a big but here, it's a big however, there is a catch. There is a catch to God's promise. There is a condition that we have to meet for him to supply our needs. And he's revealed that condition in the verses that lead up to Paul's statement of verse 19. So look with me, starting at verse 15. You yourselves also know, Philippians... That at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I've received everything in full and have an abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you've sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to the Lord. Now, in these verses, Paul is simply reminding the Philippians of how generous they had been to him, and he's thanking them for this. There was no church like the church at Philippi who was sensitive to Paul's needs like this church was. In fact... Paul's letter to the Philippians is essentially a thank you note to them with a lot of doctrine in it, but it's a thank you note. So he's thanking them for how generous they had been to him in sending monetary gifts and supplies to him on several occasions. Their latest expression of generosity, he says, was being delivered to him by the hands of a member of their congregation by the name of Epaphroditus. So Paul said, all of my needs are, are met and, I, and you're to thank for that. So listen closely. It is to these Philippians, these very poor Christians, who had been so generous to Paul's to supply all of his needs when there were other churches that frankly didn't even think of the courtesy, the sensitivity of helping the Apostle Paul, but they did. It's to this generous people that the Apostle Paul promises that likewise God will be generous to them. In other words, God promises to be generous in providing for the needs of every believer who is generous in providing for the needs of other believers. You see, if you want God to be generous with you, then you have to be generous with others. That's the condition. And that takes faith on our part. Faith to trust God that if we give to others, God will meet our needs. He'll provide for our needs. This is exactly what he promises. There ought to be no stinginess amongst Christians. We are to reflect Christ who is the epitome of generosity. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, he said, what do you have that you did not receive? The answer is nothing. Everything we have we receive from him because he's generous to us. And we are likewise to be generous to others. Many years ago, when Michelle and I were going through a very difficult time financially, the early years of our marriage, it was such a difficult time that we came to a point where I really thought we we might have to cut back on our offerings. 
in the church, which is a very painful thing for me to think of. But in the providence of God, he led me to read these particular verses in Philippians chapter 4. And I remember being convicted of my sin, of my lack of faith in the Lord to meet our needs. And so based on God's promise, I decided to do something. I decided that instead of cutting back on our offerings, we would do just the opposite. We would increase our offerings. No financial advisor would have given us that advice. None. We would do just the opposite of what it appeared we should do. And I say this to God's credit, his glory, his praise. I can attest to you that he met every one of our needs back then. And he continues to meet all of our needs today. Because why? Because he's faithful to his word. You can trust him to supply everything you need as long as you are generous in helping others in need. And so Jesus tells his men to take no supplies, no money on this missions trip because they need, they need to begin to start learning to trust him to meet their needs and he will meet their needs and he'll do it through people. And that leads us to the fourth timeless principle about biblical ministry, which is ministry for Christ should be characterized by contentment, satisfaction. Verse four, whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. Having just told the apostles what provisions not to take with them on this missions trip and that they are not to charge people money for their services, Jesus now tells them what they should do when they arrive in a town or in a village. Now Matthew again gives us a little bit more information of what Jesus actually said to his men. Matthew records Jesus as saying this, and whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay in his house until you leave that city. Now Jesus instructs them that when they entered a town, a village, they are to find out what person in that town is worthy. What does that mean, who's worthy? It means find out who in that community is a follower of Christ, someone with a good testimony. Find out who's a believer. Find out who's a disciple. Find out who's a brother or a sister in Christ. Find out who believes in me. And once they find someone like that, Jesus tells them to stay with that person the entire time that they are conducting their evangelistic outreach to that community. Stay there until leaving the town. Stay there. I don't want you to look for another place to stay. Now, why did the Lord tell them this? And what possible principle can we apply from this statement? Well, I remind you that Jesus has just finished telling the apostles that God would provide for their physical needs through the generosity of his people because the worker is worthy of his support. And so now he wants them to understand how this concept actually works. He tells them that once they enter a village, they are to find out by inquiry if there are any there who believe in him. And if so, They are to seek to stay with them. And note this, the reason for this is because this is the way that God will provide for their lodgings, their food, their supplies. He will supply their needs through those who are fellow believers and friends of the gospel. This is precisely why they can trust God to meet their needs because he promises to provide for all of their needs through his people's kindness and generosity. 
But I want you to notice something important about this command by our Lord. Notice that the Lord tells them that once they find a fellow disciple who opens their home to them, they are to stay there until they leave that city. In other words, they are to remain at that house for the duration of their ministry in that village. That is to say, they are not to seek better accommodations or to be on the lookout for someone who would provide them with more physical comforts or luxuries. Now, this is a very important truth for all of us to understand because it highlights the attitude that all believers should have with God's provisions for them. He promises to provide. Now, he tells us what our attitude must be with his provisions, especially those who serve Christ full-time. And that attitude should be contentment. Jesus wants his men, his 12 apostles, to be satisfied with what he provides for them and not to be preoccupied with trying to find upgrades for their lodgings. And satisfaction with what God provides is exactly what he wants for all of us. You see, effective ministry to the world, no matter what your ministry might be, is dependent upon being satisfied and content with God's provisions. And that's because satisfaction or dissatisfaction with God's provisions, they make a very loud statement about how you view ministry because it reveals the motives for your service. Do you minister to serve others out of love for them or do you minister in order to get things from other people? See, all of us need to guard our hearts against our natural sinful inclination to be greedy and not content with what God has supplied for us. But it is especially important that Christian leaders be content. Why? Because they are so high profile. Everybody's watching them. Sadly, though, there are some Christian leaders who have allowed the emphasis of their ministries to become little more than fundraising appeals. Now, it's certainly not wrong to make financial needs of a ministry known, but it is wrong very wrong to be discontent with what God has provided for you and to allow yourself to be distracted from ministry by an unhealthy preoccupation on asking for more and more money. That's wrong. Now, Jesus directed this command about contentment in ministry to his apostles in preparation for their first missions trip. But the principle of contentment certainly wasn't limited to the apostles. Every follower of his is commanded, not suggested, it is commanded in Scripture to, that we be content with the material things that God has provided for us, regardless of the amount of our income. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, we read this. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. Don't pursue money. Don't love money. Be content with what you have. For he himself has said, I'll never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? And this is in the context of persecution. Regardless of what people take from you, you can trust the Lord. You can be content because he'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He is your helper. He'll give you exactly what you need. A great passage of scripture that I want you to see is Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. It's often misunderstood, so I want you to understand it. 
Paul said, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, contrary to how people apply this, you're not going to hit a home run every time you get up to bat. You're not going to get all your free throws because you can do all things through Christ. This is not talking about what you can accomplish in sports or, or in any endeavor in life. These are the verses leading up to Paul's statement about how this church so generously met his needs and therefore God's promise that he would generously meet their needs. And what the apostle wants them to understand is that he is content with whatever God provides for him. Yes, they've been generous with him. Yes, he's received that. Yes, he's very grateful. But he's content because he has learned the secret of contentment. So what is that secret? It's not really a secret when he reveals it to us. And he has revealed it. The secret of contentment is to know that God always gives his grace to handle every situation that he places us in, regardless of how little we have or how much we have, whether we are in poverty or in abundance, so that regardless of his material possessions or his lack of material possessions, Paul's attitude is this, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In other words, Paul is saying, I can handle any and all circumstances, even if I have very little or if I have a great deal, because God will always strengthen me as he sustains me so that I am content with whatever he provides for me. Folks, that is the secret of contentment, to know that the Lord will always stand with you and strengthen you no matter what your circumstance might be. And that's exactly the attitude that Jesus instructed his apostles to have as he sends them into the towns and the villages of Galilee, they were to be content with the lodging and the supplies that the Lord had provided for them. But what happens next? Once they're established, they've established their lodgings in those towns and villages, then what? Once they got settled into a new town and they began to embark upon their ministry of preaching the gospel to those in the various communities, what could they expect to happen? And to find out, you'll have to come back. I teased you last week. I teased you this week. Next week, we have the Lord's Supper, but the week after that, Lord willing, we'll finish this passage up. But today, there are three important points of application that you need to make, that I need to make, that naturally flow out of these verses. They demand a response from us if we're going to obey our Savior. The first principle is about trusting God, regardless of whether or not you're in full-time ministry. You are to trust him. Do you trust him? It's too easy for us to to have our security in our bank accounts, in our paychecks. Do you look to him to supply your needs? Is it part of your prayer requests? Do you actually pray about these things? You should. He wants you to. Or do you just worry and fret? That's exactly what Jesus said don't do. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow is enough problems of of its own. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and he'll provide for you. In the midst of that, 
as you're seeking him, understand that you need to be generous. Generosity is, is part of the character of Christ, so we are to be generous. If you're generous with others, God will be generous with you. Not so that you can spend it on yourself and have luxuries. That's the health and wealth gospel. No, we're generous with others and God is generous back to us so we can then meet our needs but be generous to others again. That's how it works. He has an endless supply of his riches. He will meet your needs. The second point of application has to do with your obedience to financially support those who minister to you our missionaries on the field too. This is one reason why it's so important to be obedient in the area of giving. You are to give regularly to wherever local church you're being ministered to and you're a part of, not sporadically, regularly. This is why this is to be done in the context of a local church. Third point of application has to do with contentment. Are you content with what God has provided for you or do you complain and gripe and in your heart You're just not satisfied. In God's sovereign plan, he does provide more for some and less for others. But he knows what he's doing. Regardless of how much or how little he's provided for you, the issue always comes down to contentment. Contentment. And contentment only comes through trusting that God is wise and loving and has your best interest at heart. And that in his wisdom and in his love, he has given you everything he wants you to have. Now, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, then you need to understand that God is able to give you what is most important in life, and that is salvation. Forgiveness of your sins that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross for sinners. And when you repent of your sin and turn to him and trust him with an attitude of submission to his authority, he saves you. He forgives your sin. He begins to transform your character. That's the most important thing that he gives you in this life and in the life to come. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. If you would like to speak to one of our pastors about this, then just see me as we close the service. I'll be up here at the front. Join me in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for what we've been able to study today. Lord, help us to be a people who trust you for our needs, a people who do what your word says in being generous to others, a people who can praise you because of your faithfulness and goodness to them and supplying their needs. Lord, I thank you for your kindness to Michelle and myself all these years. And I pray that each one here will be able to experience your faithfulness like that. And Lord, I pray you'll help us to be a content people, never to love money, never to pursue money, to be diligent, certainly, to work hard, yes, but to be content with our wages, to be content with our homes, to be content with our automobiles, to be content with our physical possessions. Lord, we thank you that regardless of what happens, we can trust you that you're loving and kind and you give us exactly what you want us to have. We also pray, Lord, for any who are either present in the auditorium or watching on live stream, if they don't know you, I pray that you'll open their hearts to the gospel, that they'll see their need for Christ. They'll be convicted of their sin of rebellion against you and that they will come 
in humility, trusting you as their Lord and Savior. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.